this week on the Back Table Podcast. I think that you just have to make the case that room time is money. I mean, listen, a para in your room is not making you a lot of money. Even a metaport in your room is better than having a para in your room. I think when you can show them that you can move procedures out of the procedure room, it's like night and day. I mean, when you think about it, imagine moving, having some technique that allowed you to move a procedure that took an hour in CT out of CT. They can always understand that because you can do six or eight diagnostic studies in an hour, as opposed to taking up the room with, with one procedure that is not well compensated. And the same thing happens in, in the IR. And I think it's particularly the case when you have more demand for your rooms than you have room time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. We will start the episode in a minute, but first, a brief word from our sponsor. The Renova RP Paracentesis Management System by GI Supply offers a new option for your patients with recurrent ascites. This unique approach puts the focus on patient and staff satisfaction providing a closed system alternative to vacuum bottles and wall suction that is fast and gentle. Learn more about Renova by visiting www.rethinkparas.com. Very excited to have Dr. Karen Brown with us. Welcome, Karen. Thanks for having me. Today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about workflow efficiency, and we're going to actually focus on a pretty basic procedure that everybody, you know, most of our audience probably does on a daily basis, if not on an hourly basis, the paracentesis. But we're going to talk about workflow efficiency in, in that how do we, as we get busier uh, in IR and, and our departments get busier, and a lot of more basic procedures, you know, get offloaded from DR to IR and a lot of private practices you know, how do we make our departments more efficient? And we're going to start this with, with a basic procedure like paracentesis because there are ways that, to do it. And it sounds like they were able to kind of sort this out at University of Utah using some new technology. But before we get into all that, Karen, I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and, you know, and then maybe tell us a little bit about the IR training program at University of Utah. I spent the majority of my career in New York City. I was uh, last at Sloan Kettering for 27 years. I moved to the University of Utah in 2019 as section chief. And one of the things that was apparent to me from the get-go was that we needed to improve our workflow efficiency in many ways. We have 35 resident trainees. Five of those are IRDR residents. And for the last couple of years, we've had at least one fellow. And some years, we've had two fellows. So we have seven IR, so to speak, designated trainees in the program. Great. And, and for the students in the audience, can you tell us a little bit about like the breadth of procedures that you guys do? Are you doing a little bit of everything? Is it more of an IO focus or PAD focus? The University of Utah is a referral center for the five touching states. It's a general hospital. It's both a level one trauma center as well as a stroke center. So we see and do everything from IO to portal hypertension to, you know, routine nephrostomies, abscess drain, et cetera. And we, we cover the gamut. Great. So it sounds like a pretty well-rounded training program. That's awesome for students out there to kind of hear about. So tell us before we jump into, you know, this, this article that w was written from your department, how do you guys get your paracentesis patients 
how do they find their way to you? Is it mostly GI, oncology, hospitalists, the ER? I would say the majority come from the gastroenterologists, and most of those patients have portal hypertension. We also get a significant uh, number of patients from the oncologists, uh, and most of those patients, or many of them, have malignant ascites. We see any sort of paracentesis from the general floor on the inpatient side, so we also are getting some of our cases from the hospitalists. You know, again, I'm not so sure we're getting so many of these from DR, because at least from the time I've been there, DR was not doing much in the way of paracentesis, although I gather they did in the past. But I think what's happening is that there's more and more focus on sending these procedures that used to be done on the floor to the interventional radiology section. And we've seen a tremendous growth in this over the last several years. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, my brother-in-law is a hospitalist and he's at UT Southwestern here. And he says that they don't even train the residents how to do them bedside anymore, you know? And so they pretty much all get sent to IR. So you're right. The volume has increased. So I'm in private practice and, you know, paracentesis is part of our, our daily case mix. Sometimes it's, I would say at minimum, you have one a day. It could be as many as five a day, depending on how many inpatient add-ons we get. But you know, sometimes our DR colleagues will pitch in and, you know, if we're busy in a case in the lab, they'll go do a paracentesis. But a lot of times they like to, to make sure that IR does it. I want to talk about what an efficient paracentesis practice might look like and thoracentesis for that matter as well, right? Because that's, it's kind of along the same lines. It can really slow down the, the ultrasound or IR department, depending on where it's being done. In some groups, it's purely ultrasound that does it. And you just, the ultrasound tech text you and you run over there and you do it, but they're busy doing all kinds of other ultrasound diagnostic procedures as well. And, and they really can get in a bad mood if they got a bunch of add-ons in a day. So we're trying to help them become more efficient as well. So what do you, let's talk about, first of all, you know, maybe scheduling. Is there a certain time of the day that, that you guys do that? Do you block these cases? Can you talk, tell us about like how that workflow works at Utah? When I first was at the University of Utah, these cases would be booked into a room. And as I'm sure you know, the procedure itself of placing the catheter takes five minutes, maybe 10 minutes if you include prepping and draping. The problem is for the large volume paras, it can take quite a while to take off seven to 10 liters of fluid. And the entire time the patient is in your procedure room. And to me, that is not an efficient or not a good, not a cost-effective use of that room time. So one of my goals was to move those procedures out of the procedure room so that our procedure rooms could be used for patients who actually needed to come into a $1.5 million state-of-the-art IR room because they needed a procedure done that required that. So one of the issues that we had was how do we do that? Because in our pre and post bays, you know, the places the patients come in and the patients they go out, they didn't have wall suction. And again, when I got to the University of Utah, we typically used wall suction. So we'd put in the catheter and then we'd hook the patient up to wall suction and then we'd wait until they were done. Sometimes you had to adjust the catheter, but almost inevitably it was an hour of room time. So one of the goals was to move that out of the procedure room. And when I became aware of the Renova device, one of the things that attracted me to the device immediately was its portability. Yeah. Now, just because you mentioned the device, but I want to back up one sec. 
When did you start involving PAs or NPs? And you, you of course, have residents, so once they're trained up. But how did that, because I think a lot of people struggle with handing that off as well. How did that unfold? Okay, so about a year and a half ago, I made the, you know, we have a, a backlog of cases. We have people who need other things done, who are making noise that their inpatients weren't getting done for two days. And in some cases, this was keeping the patient in the hospital an additional day. Like, let's say someone needed a G2 before they could be discharged. And part of the problem was our room was taken up with these other cases. So I made a proposal to the hospital that if we could hire an additional APC, so that we had an APC at all times devoted to what we call the para service, then we could move all of the paras and thoras. Well, I shouldn't say all of them, but the majority of them. You know, just as you've said, some days you're overwhelmed, you get 10 requests. And so we may do some in a, in a regular procedure room. But for the most part, we've moved the majority of them out of the room and into the holding area. We usually book right now about five or six paras on outpatients. And then we reserve additional spots for inpatients. We also sometimes do the inpatients portably. You know, if a patient's in the unit, it's much easier to take the Renova and the cart. We have a special cart that we got so that we can take our show on the road, so to speak. So we'll take the Renova right up to the bedside and do the procedure there. It's also been very good during the COVID era when you don't necessarily want to bring a COVID positive patient through the hallways and down into your area. We would do those portably as well. Perfect. And then with the PAs and MPs, once they're trained up, they can basically function on their own, right? They don't need an M. Do they need an MD in the room while they're sticking? No. No. Okay. Yeah. Not in the state of Utah. I'm sure that varies from place to place, but there's no requirement they can act independently for these procedures that they've been credentialed for. That's great. And then are they in turn training the residents on how to do them? For the most part, some of them, again, we still will do. One of our rooms is typically run by an APC. So the APCs, for instance, do most of the, or much of the venous access. So if one of the procedural APCs is doing a paraorthora, they will typically involve the resident. But yes, the residents can get training on doing these from the APCs who run the service. In addition, we often have residents rotate in from medicine. Yeah, in the, in the West, some of these people are going to be going into private practice where they may have limited IR availability. So some of the uh, medicine people are motivated to learn how to do this, and they'll rotate through with us for a week or so, and they'll spend some of that time with the APC. That's great. And they're learning the ultrasound guidance and everything. Exactly. Perfect. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about the, the pumps, right? You started with the Renova. I know there's some other ones out there. I, the, the hospitals that I work at locally, they have the Stryker Neptune, which is a, a larger piece of equipment probably not as portable. But tell me, when you first learned about Renova, like, was it hard to get buy-in from the hospital to purchase the equipment? Or did, did you have to kind of, you know, try to sell them on it? It was not hard because the pressure on our rooms is so intense that anything that could move procedures out of the procedure room was definitely seen as a positive. I think that there was immediate buy-in from the staff because I don't know how much you know about the device, but it comes with drainage bags that actually hang on the device itself. And each one accepts 1.6 liters of fluid. And there's a stop collect you can turn when one is full to have the flow go into the other. 
Then you remove the one that's full, you cap it off, you put it in your uh, red bag, and you hang another bag there. So, so the staff are not changing the buckets on the wall for the wall suction. And in addition, particularly helpful when you're going on the road and doing the procedures at the bedside, you don't have to get anyone else involved. Essentially, the APC, with very little assistance from maybe a nurse, can do the whole procedure and no exposure to body fluids. So they, they all appreciate that tremendously. Yeah. And, and it sounds like you guys were so impressed with it and it improved the workflow so much that you actually took the time to put together a, uh, a research article that was just published in Diagnostic Interventional Radiology Journal titled Paracentesis Faster and Easier Using the Renova RP Pump. What inspired you guys to write the article? And if you just some key take-home points from the article. Well, so one of the things that I focus on a lot and always have is clinical research that's relevant to our practice. So, you know, we wanted to make this uh, more efficient for room time. And because we started using the Renova before we had the Parathora service set up. So for a time period, these were still being done in our room. So what we wanted to do is be able to show the hospital that there was value to this anyway. Because, you know, the initial outlay for the pump is not so much the issue, but the tubing and the bags are also a cost. And you can make the argument that if you're using the wall suction, you just are using one of those plastic containers that can hold up to a couple of liters and use a few of those. And that's your net cost. Everything else is available in the room. So we wanted to see if our impression that this was better, that it was more efficient and well tolerated was indeed true. So what we did is we just set up a trial where we compared our typical method of doing a paracentesis. So we, had the, we always have their wall suction set to about the same level whenever we did the paras. So we used that level and compared it to the Renova pump set at not quite full throttle. I think it was about 80%. And we just uh, saw how long did it take to do the paras when we were doing wall suction. And we did that part of the trial before the Renovas came in. So in other words, we ordered them. We knew that we were going to be switching over, but we didn't have access to the pumps yet. So we said, let's just see how long it takes us when we do it our normal way. And then once we get the Renova pumps, let's see how long it takes us to do them that way. We also, as part of the trial, asked the patients what they preferred. And almost uniformly, the patients preferred the Renova pump. And I think there are two reasons for that. One is that it actually was quicker. And, you know, the patients don't like to hang out in our room any more than we want them to be there, right? They, they'd like to get in and get out and back to, their, back to their business. And I also think there was less of an issue with the Renova capturing the bowel, you know, sucking in the bowel, which gives the patients pain and also means you have to go in the room and typically adjust the catheter to a different position. Now, that was not significant in our trial, the number of adjustments, but there was a trend towards the patient's saying that they preferred the device and so did the staff. And again, the staff preferred the device for the obvious issues. It's very easy to set up. It's not a big learning curve. And again, they were never exposed to any of the patient's body fluids. They appreciate that. Yeah, it, sounds, it sounded like the time saved was almost half. Is that right? About that. That's right. Now, you know, you could make the argument, why don't you turn up the wall suction higher? Like, why did you choose that rate? Well, the reason we chose that rate is that's what we typically used. Yeah. And, and like you said, when you do turn it up, then you actually do suck the bowel, which is painful and 
that just leads to an adjust, uh, you know, having to readjust, which decreases efficiency. And so key take home points was decrease the time and increase patient satisfaction. What did you guys do at that time? Was it fitting more paracentesis patients in or was no. it just clearing up time for other, <laughs> just clearing up more time for other procedures? Since we started this parathora service, it's very uncommon that we have four or five leftover inpatients that are getting bumped to the next day. You know, we, we always have one or two. I mean, it's not uncommon. I'm sure you experience where they come to you at 1, 1 p.m. and they need something done. And just when they came to you, the patient just finished eating. So, you know, those patients get bumped to the next day. But we are really have freed up room time. And not only that, but the Parathora service itself has grown. So in 2019, 2020, before we started our Parathora service, we were doing about uh, 675, say six, say 700 paras a year. And in the most recent uh, six-month period, we're doing 91 a month. So we're on course to do over 1,000 paracentesis a year. So this is offering a benefit, I think, to the patient and to their doctors in that they're able to refer to us and we're able to take care of the patients in a very timely fashion. You know, it's like the, uh, if you build it, they will come. So that's what happened. Now that it's easy for people to get these things scheduled, we've seen a, a rapid growth in our volume. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, it really depends on, on your practice and whether you're doing them as inpatients and outpatients and how you're billing. But at least if there's the need there, you can help these patients more efficiently. Well, and it's part of the whole service line, right? So if your referring docs are happy because they can get their patient in faster and get it done, then chances are that's going to lead to other procedures, right? That's right. And, you know, those portal hypertension patients, the referring docs might be more open to conversations about other procedures that can help them versus seeing IR as obstructive to care when we can't even get a paracentesis done, which you I've seen in some toxic departments. That's right. Plus, when we see these people, when we know that somebody's coming over and over for a paracentesis for portal hypertension, we reach out to their doctors, particularly if they're not coming from one of the gastroenterologists who's involved with portal hypertension, and we'll recommend to them, for instance, that the patient might have a tips for control of their ascites. So that's right. Yeah, you can start having that conversation with them. Yeah. Have you noticed any other services like GI using the Renova? Because I know some GI departments will have their own paracentesis clinic. Have you collaborated or discussed that with, with GI at all? Nope. Uh, there's really very little that's done in the way of service work outside of <laughs> interventional radiology. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> it's, it's really the bane of our existence, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the other problem with success, right? If you're, if you're super efficient, it's like, well, it, they're going to get in faster uh, if we send an IR than if we send a GI. So it's probably, that's kind of one of the, I guess, the downsides of being more efficient and, and providing a better service. Is there any downside to using the pump at all? I mean, have you noticed, I mean, we talked about the disposable elements there, the cost doesn't seem cost prohibitive, but any kind of issues, any maintenance, do they, sh you know, have you noticed that they clog up or anything like that, that you've noticed that that could be a downside? I haven't. As a matter of fact, I was very impressed with how sturdy they are, because on rare occasion, they've been dropped on the floor and they actually work after they've been dropped. I think one of them, we had to replace the knob, but the actual device continued to work. So yeah, they're pretty sturdy. They're light. I said, we have this portable cart 
They fit right on the cart. We put all the equipment that we need in the drawers. And even that cart is what we usually use when we're doing the procedures in the holding area because it, ha- it contains all of the equipment that we need. It's been very well accepted by the APCs. Actually, uh, many of them like it. So we have seven or eight APCs and they're always looking. We have two that are primarily procedural and the rest were mainly involved in taking care of our patients on the floor. So this has been a net positive that they rotate through the PT service, the parathora service, and they like that. They like days when they're just doing procedures. There are a couple of them weren't interested and so they don't need, they don't have to. But you know, I think many places are having issues with retaining staff, both nurses, APCs, RTs, anything that you can do to make people feel more involved and engaged and part of the group and happier in their job. I think that's a, a net win for everyone. Yeah, for sure. And the patients are happier, so they're not as grumpy. And, you know, that happiness is contagious for sure. And so, you know, it, for our audience who might be considering adding this to their workflow, it sounds like it's cost effective. It sounds like, you know, that was kind of one of the bottom, one of the take home points from the article. Sometimes it is difficult to get admin or, you know, the purchasers to understand how, just how valuable time savings really can be. Do you have any advice for anybody in our audience who's like, I want to go, I want to try and get this on board, but I don't know how to get through to my admin or to the main purchasing person uh, in the department? I think that you just have to make the case that room time is money. And when you can do, I mean, listen, a para in your room is not making you a lot of money. Even a metaport in your room is better than having a para in your room. So I think if someone has a holding area or some holding room where they have wall suction and they're able to use that room all day long, then it's probably not going to be cost effective for them. Although the patients may prefer it or the techs may prefer it, that doesn't tend to get very far with the admin. But I think when you can show them that you can move procedures out of the procedure room, it's like night and day. I mean, when you think about it, imagine moving, having some technique that allowed you to move a procedure that took an hour in CT out of CT. They can always understand that because you can do six or eight diagnostic studies in an hour as opposed to taking up the room with, with one procedure that is not well compensated. And the same thing happens in, in the IR. And I think it's particularly the case when you have more demand for your rooms than you have room time. And that was the situation I had when I went to University of Utah. They're getting, the admins are getting a lot of complaints from the referring doctors. And, and that's another way to help them understand. If we do somebody's she-tube today and they get discharged tomorrow morning, that's one night in hospital that you're saving. If they wait till tomorrow and don't get discharged till the next day, you know, that's, got, that's costing the hospital thousands of dollars. So to invest in a piece of equipment with some bags and tubing, I think it's a no-brainer. No-brainer, yeah. And now they have this article as ammo too, as ammo too, right? Just print out the article and show it to them, throw it on their desk. Well, final thoughts as we wrap up. It sounds like you came into your job as a section chief and you had some goals to improve workflow efficiency and you were able to accomplish that with the paracentesis and thoracentesis model. Did that spill over? Was there anything else that you had on your checklist of like, I want to improve workflow for this procedure? Just to quickly give an example. Well, I think the most notable thing was 
when I uh, arrived there, I found that many of the patients were coming in for their procedures without labs, and they were getting their labs the time they came in. See, and of course, if you have an 8.15 procedure and you draw the patient's labs at 7, and at 8 o'clock they come back hemolyzed, or they come back abnormal, you're not using your room time efficiently. So one of the things that I initiated is everyone is prepared for their procedure before they show up for the procedure. The room time is scheduled properly to account for the amount of time that the procedure takes. We looked at how much time we needed for our inpatients every day, because you know the inpatients can't go anywhere else. And once we found out how many hours we needed, we tried to leave approximately that many hours in the two rooms at each site so we would be able to accommodate the inpatients and not have them sitting for days waiting to get their procedure done. So it's patients being prepared, scheduling, accurate scheduling in terms of room time, and leaving time on the schedule to take care of the inpatients. Those were three of the things that we focused on when I came there. The other thing I would say, one other thing is all of the procedures now that we do outside of the routine. So outside of routine venous access, catheter exchange, paras and thoras, the other cases are vetted and approved. Because if somebody shows up for a procedure that was booked, just booked by one of the schedulers and no one knows what the procedure is, all of a sudden you spend a half an hour figuring out what you're doing and then 40 minutes doing the procedure. Not efficient. So now all of our procedures get electronically approved. So when you have something in your room, you can just look at the order and you know what you're supposed to do, what the objective is. That was key. Yeah, that's great. And I, I see that in some of the hospitals I work at here in Dallas where, you know, things get approved, yeah, by a scheduler uh, and the, the patient shows up and it's like not even indicated. I mean, it might be a biopsy for something that's not even accessible that nobody even looked at. And so that is key because not only does it, it messes up your day because you're trying to figure it out, but the patient is not happy. And a lot of times the referring doc is not happy, right? And so it's just an essential part. I mean, that's... <laughs> As we talk about being more clinical uh, as, uh, you know, as IRs, I mean, that's what surgeons do. Uh, and, and we need to kind of be more careful about that. And, and it helps workflow, it helps your day to day. So I don't know why we don't work towards that, especially in private practice. Any time that you spend up front will be repaid in spades, as they say on the back end. Because when patients show up, they feel confident because you know what you're doing, you know, that it's very, it's not a cool thing to say to the patient, well, what are you here for? <laughs> they like to know that you know what they're here for, right? And then you can get started. You don't have to start with a bunch of phone calls. And like you say, find out that the thing that someone thought was a liver lesion was actually an artifact, right? Right, exactly. It could be imaging that was just misinterpreted, you know? And so have, have the procedurals who's doing the procedure approve it before it gets on their schedule is key. And that, you know, I, I think we, we all kind of learn that as we go out and practice and we try and develop our own workflows. But Karen, this has been really helpful and um, I really appreciate your time. Any other pearls for the audience before we finish? No, I think that's about it. But I think the approval thing probably is the biggest pearl. You know, we started that years ago at Sloan Kettering and it made such a difference. You know, in the olden days, we used to scribble things on the, on the requests that used to pop out of a machine. But you can do this all electronically now in Epic or whatever your EMR is. And then the information is there. Right. The imaging's there. Yeah, you don't have to upload a disk. That's right. Right, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you to our audience for tuning in. And that's it. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.